When good morning. Well, I'm telling you something. I'm brain dead right now. <laughs> Man, we had such an event here last night. It was totally insane. It was a good insane. You know what I mean by that. And, uh, man, I never parked so many cars in my life. I mean, they went all the way back to the fence back there. We're going to have to open it up and go into the neighbor's yard. But anyway, we just had a great time. And uh, uh, this summer, I I had uh, gotten an invitation for a wedding. My nephew, actually. Um, My oldest brother, who's home with the Lord now, his boy was getting married. And he said, man, Unc, if you could be there, if you could, you and Ann Erm could come. And, and so I said, all right, well, you know, Erm, let's do this thing. You know, you do all the arranging and, you know, so sh- that's a mistake. But um, and I'm kind of a guy like, just give me a hotel room, you know, and just let me do my thing and get me, get me back to my people. And well, she finds this thing and she says, well, we actually were renting a house. And I go, but I don't want to rent a house, honey. I just, I want to go there. She goes, no, you're going to love it, you know. And, I, and so she talks me into it. And so we're driving for hours. We're up in the mountains, the Adirondacks, and uh, we're following our GPS. And we come up there, and we start to drive up this hill. And I go, babe, these people got a horse in the front yard, you know, and it's not tied up. And so I'm not a horse person. I don't know. Is this thing going to attack me and chase me off the land? And and so anyway, I, I get in there and I just settle down, you know. And of course, Erm, Erm she's fascinated by um, these creatures. Um, and she just loves studying about horses. I don't know what's with her. But anyway, um, so she's outside and uh, she comes in. That evening, we see these these books sitting there and... She starts to read it. I look over at her, and she's getting a little emotional. And I go, what's in the book? So she starts reading it to me. Well, before you know it, I'm sitting there. I'm crying over this crazy book, uh, um, this experience this family went through. And so as we're sitting there, we get, and then when I find out the one who wrote the book owns the house I'm in. And, um, and so we thought, oh, what's the chance? If we could get her to come and speak at our Christmas tea. Well, I, can't, I couldn't talk her into doing the whole service for us. But I did ask her if she just would come up and say hi to you guys. And just briefly share what they went through. Amen, guys. Would you guys welcome Randy? She's the best. I'm really not the best, but thank you for having me here today. I had um, such a great time last night. For those of you who were here, I know the men weren't. Well, some of the men were, but not actually sitting at the tables eating. And what a sweet time. And I wanted to say thank you to especially the workers um, doing this and pulling this off. Um, It was really cool stepping in and watching this come together and seeing what an outreach you have on your community. And you're doing it right. And it, it was just such a great event to be a part of. I was just a small little part of it. But it was really sweet to see and um, be part of your evening last night. And um, so Harry and Irma asked me to share this morning for a few minutes um, a little bit of my story. And I'll try to um, keep it condensed because there's a lot to it. Um, but I, like they were saying, I grew up in the Adirondack Park, which is in upstate New York. 
I'm about 20 minutes from Vermont, so I'm like really in the woods. It's a beautiful um, place in the country. Uh, my parents are actually originally from New Jersey and um, super cool people. Um, they decided to move up there to have property and raise their family. And believe it or not, my mom um, is an animal lover. And it was really important for her that she has horses, have horses on the property. She knew enough about them to raise them and have them. And before I even came around, there were horses. And I grew up on the back of a horse. Um, and that's, you know, looking back, it was just normal for me. It wasn't anything... Um, even that special, which is kind of sad, but now that I'm a mom and an adult, I see how special that is that I had that, but um, it was kind of a crazy, um, don't think like we did horse shows and horse jumping and all that. It was just kind of like a wild um, fest as far as we would just hop on our horses and run in the woods because that's what we could do, and that was my childhood, and it was a huge part of, of me, and another um, really big part of myself growing up was my parents. And um, my parents are really, really neat people. Um, they're kind of my heroes. I'm, I'm like the dorky daughter because my parents own Harleys and ride them. And, like, they have the full leather, like, you know, outfit and boots and everything. And they drive these Harleys around. And my dad um, owns a boat and he barefoots. And they're just really cool people. Um, but beside that, they showed me as a child um, their love for each other in their marriage, but also their love for Christ. And that really impacted me as a, as a little girl. And I, I wanted that. I wanted their faith. I wanted um, to live like them because they were like the cool parents, you know. And um, so as a little girl, I, I made that decision to follow Christ. And I, I lived my life as, as best as I could. And my parents provided that like safe haven for me by, by, by um, leading me and, and showing me um, showing me the, the way to go, and I wasn't a very rebellious kid, and I, I grew up. And I met my husband, Graham, um, through an interesting family situation. Um, my brother married his sister, and um, I met Graham, actually, we were pretty young, and just kind of through the years, he, he, my husband is from Indianapolis, Indiana, so city. His, his dad is actually a pastor. Um, as well, and they have a church out in Indiana, and Graham is the only one who actually left Indiana. All his family lives still in Indiana. Um, but Graham never really quite fit in the city, and his family would, um, because now we were kind of married, like our families were together, but not, and they would come and vacation to the Adirondack Park because it's beautiful there, and why not, you know? And I kept kind of bumping into this guy, and um, this guy wanted the country life. Specifically, he wanted the cowboy life. And he saw that we had horses, he saw that I had horses, and um, I'm not sure what he was attracted to first, <laughs> me or the horses. I think he would actually pick the horses, and he just used me. Um, but I, <laughs> I taught him how to ride over the years, and we kind of just kept bumping into each other through the years. And finally we were like, wait, this is more than just friendship, we should start dating. And we did, and we were married, and... Um, had a great life together. My husband um, had a full-time job actually like providing, but I actually ended up going to college for equine science and management. That's fancy words for I went to school and played with horses. And um, I had a job, I, more like a hobby job, of working at this kids' camp um, that specifically had a, a pretty large horsemanship program. 
And Graham was a huge part of that. By now, we were older a little bit, and we had a couple kids, and he was, got quite good at writing. In fact, if you were to ask him who the better writer was at that time, he would say, well, it's me, um, him, saying he's the better writer. And I'm always like, but wait, I taught you how to ride, so, you know. But no, he got really good at riding these horses. In fact, he was um, training and breaking them and, and just a really incredible rider. You would, never would have guessed that he grew up in the city and was a city kid. Um, and so in 2010, I, I um, was running this program. It was a large program. We had anywhere between like 60 to 80 horses, just to give you an idea. And I was over the whole thing, giving lessons. Um, I had a staff of about 20 wranglers. Um, and uh, we would give trail rides and things like that. And a very small part of my job was we would have to, at the end of the week, put on this rodeo um, for the, all the guests, because it was a pretty large camp. And that was like the, the finale of the week. And we had been doing this now for years, and I, I depended on Graham a lot for these rodeos. Um, his horse he had, had had since a foal, and he had trained and broke this horse. It was an amazing horse. He used it for all the events. Um, if I wasn't pregnant, I would ride in the rodeos, but some, some rodeos when I was really, really pregnant, of course, I, I wouldn't ride. But in the summer of 2010, I wasn't pregnant, and I was able to ride. And uh, one of Graham's favorite events that he was in was a roping event. Um, you've probably seen it on TV, or maybe you've even seen it in person, but it's where you um, chase down a cow and lasso it, and you dally it to your horn. And he had been doing this forever, for a long time, and no big deal. And um, we actually only had a few more rodeos to get through. The summer of 2010, I was actually going to um, resign my position there because we wanted more, more kids, and we were excited to see where the Lord was going to move us, um, which is kind of ironic. Um, so we only had a few more rodeos to get through. And that Friday night, he was in a really bad accident with his horse. Um, he took off running after this cow. He, um, I remember even thinking he looked so cool, looked like he grew up on a ranch down in Texas, and as he let his rope loose, he caught, caught the cow immediately, of course, um, he was very competitive, um, and he dallied it onto his horn, and the cow, for whatever reason, decided to, instead of dropping straight in front of the horse, it kind of like veered off to the side really quick, and it was able to pull my husband's horse off balance, and um, they completely crashed into the arena floor. And, um, you know, as you can imagine, my, my world was kind of flipped. He, um, I, initially, I thought he would be okay. A few seconds ticked by, and I thought he would hop right back up and get back on his horse and wave to the crowd, you know. Um, but he, he wasn't moving, and actually his horse wasn't moving either. And um, we got to him, and he was completely knocked out. His head had taken the full force of that fall. And he actually um, also hit, like, his back and shoulder and broke his back in the fall as well. Um, so as you can imagine, it was a crazy time. I had kind of lived this comfy life up until then, you know? Like, I had a relationship with the Lord, but um, I hadn't really walked something like this yet. And we were thrown into an ambulance, then he was thrown onto a helicopter, and we were raced down to the ICU. And we were told that he had a pretty bad head injury, and we were just told we had to wait. We had to wait it out. And weeks went by, and nothing was really happening. He um, was on complete life support. I, don't, I had pictures yesterday, last night. It's, do you have some today? Oh, perfect. Yeah. Doesn't he look great? Um, so that's Graham. And um, we um, basically, yeah, they had no information for us. They couldn't tell me anything. 
Um, you know, as you can imagine, it was just a crazy time. And they, um, about two, two and a half weeks in, they were like, we need to do an MRI on him. He's not really responding how we thought he was going to respond. And that, that MRI was really kind of the turning point for me because um, it wasn't good results. He had severe damage. You have, like, lobes in your brain, and the two, the two frontal lobes were badly, badly damaged. And they said they gave me about a 1% chance of him waking up. And they told me he maybe could breathe again on his own, but um, that that would be about it. And, um, you know, I thought about what to share with you guys this morning because I shared a lot more last night. Um, but what I wanted to stick on was the power of prayer because I, I, I'm hoping and thinking that I'm, I'm talking to um, other fellow believers who believe the same thing that I do. And I can't tell you how important it was for people to come alongside me and pray for us. And I mean, like, desperately pray. Graham was probably hurt in front of about 800 people. So uh, automatically, people wanted updates. They wanted to see how he was doing. So I was using social media. I was kind of new to Facebook back in 2010, but I was using social media to help me, like, get word out. And and once I got this really horrible news about this MRI, I, I stuck it out there for people to pray for us. And it was amazing watching these people, people just like you, literally come alongside of us and pray for us. And, you know, as I was preparing for the tea last night, I couldn't help but think of other characters in the Bible who prayed to God. And the Bible's littered with them, right? Crying out to God during hard times. I think of Moses um, and the Israelites, and I think of David running from Saul and things like that. But one, one person specifically stuck out to me just recently because I'm, I'm through, like, my journey. You'll see. Um, I'm through it, but I, I'm, I'm still going through stuff. And um, Daniel really stuck out to me as I was preparing for this and the fact that we only kind of think of him, at least I do, I'm pointing my finger at myself, but we think of him in that lion's den and how he cried out to God and he was saved and he was rescued from that. But there was a whole part before the lion's den that was amazing and great and he had a great life and he had worked his way up into a high position next to the king and those jealous co-workers couldn't handle it anymore. And um, yet, even in those good times, he was praying constantly on his knees. In fact, that's what got him in the lion's den, right? And it was such a reminder to me as I was getting ready for this that I need to be praying all the time, desperately, desperately to the Lord, Um, not just for myself, but others around me. And um, it was an amazing time to watch these people of Christ pray for me. I'm embarrassed to admit I wasn't praying all the time like I should have for my own husband. I was often too overwhelmed, too stressed out. It was a very dark time, and yet I surrendered to him. I put my faith and trust in him during that time, but it was amazing to watch these people also experience God through their prayers and how he used their prayers to do a miraculous work in my husband. Just like a week later after this awful MRI results, Graham started kind of like doing a few things. I don't know. Um, I have another picture that like we, we took everything off his face. He had like a trach and a feeding tube. And we, um, he started doing a couple little things that the doctors thought, okay, maybe we can put him in rehab. And I'll tell you, it was, it was a crazy ride going through that rehab. People continued to pray for us, and the Lord did an amazing work. He eventually was able to swallow, breathe on his own, um, eat food, sit up, and it just kept going from there. He was able to talk. He found his voice. He was able to walk. He was able to move his arms and legs, all of those things. And 
I truly believe it was the, the people, the body of Christ, doing what they were supposed to be doing. And today, you know, Graham eventually came home from, from the hospital. I would say from the start of his accident to where you would, you'll get to see him, and I'm going to have him come up here in just a minute, but where he's at today took about nine months. And for brain injuries, that's actually really fast. Um, and I, I'm aware of that, and I know that, but it took a long time. Even when he came home, he was still in what's called a walking coma, so he was still super confused. He didn't know what was going on. But the Lord continued to heal him even after he came home. And we stand here today as simply a testimony to God's goodness and the power of prayer. So um, I'll have Graham come up and say hi. Say um, you can see him. <laughs> Um, I think she was sharing it last night too, but, um, I was telling her about, I don't know if anybody's C.S. Lewis fans in here. I love C.S. Lewis. Um, and I was reading the problem of pain and he talks about divine goodness and stuff. And, um, I was telling her that it's very, very important to realize in this whole situation that God is not good because he healed me. That's not what makes him good. He's just plain good. If he didn't heal me, he'd be good. If he did heal me, he's good. If he doesn't heal you or your loved ones, he's still good. Um, so just trust in that and, and just pray to him and he's awesome. Um, but yeah, I don't want to take over. But. No, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, so we're, after we read this book and her, um, meets Randy outside of that house we were renting, <clears throat> she says, well, we got to meet meet her husband and she goes just don't you know don't shake his hand real hard you know because and so I go up to him and I said hey how you doing I'm Harry well his hand his hands I'm going yo you know it's, it's, it's great 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 people and thank you again Randy and Graham for coming and just hanging out with us they stayed with us over our next door and the two of their kids and they're just they're easy and fun to be with so anyway oh and by the way she she wrote a book the same one Irma and i uh, read and they're in the back and you know, before you get if you um before you go if you want to pick one up they're back there and and i think juan will make sure that's available but listen uh where are we Let's turn in our Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 1. You go, wait a minute, Harry. Chapter 1, we're studying the life and ministry of Jesus on it. On our Sundays, but um, I thought we'll change it up a little bit for the next couple of weeks and just focus on, you know, Christmas and, you know, why we do what we do and the celebration of it all. And and so I just uh, I want to do something a little different today. And it's kind of a uh, how many of you guys love studying the genealogies of the Bible? <laughs> it's like cleaning your ear with a carrot scraper, you know, um, but it, but it is. It is. It's important that we uh, we know all. Of, but there's something really in this um, that uh, intrigues me, and I'm going to share uh, just a few thoughts with you. 
Um, in Matthew chapter 1, starting with uh, verse 1, and please apologize. I apologize now because I am going to torture some of these names. But uh, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Pharez and Zerah of Tamar. And Pharez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naashon, and Naashon begat Simon, or Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz and uh, of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. Verse 6. Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her, now notice, that had been born, or I'm sorry, that had been, been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begat Roboam, and Roboam begot Abiah, and Abiah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, and Uzziah begot Joatham, and Joatham begot Achaz, and Achaz begot Eliakis, and Eliakis begot, oh, and by the way, Eliakis is Hezekiah, I'm reading out of the old king. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot uh, Josiah. Josiah begot um, Jaconias, his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. After they brought to Babylon, they were brought to Babylon. Jeconias begot Selathiel. Selathiel begot that other guy, and that other guy begot. As long as it goes into the eye gate, the brain will sort it out. And Abayu, to, uh, and Abayu begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Sadak, and Sadak begot Achim, and Achim begot uh, Eliud, and Eliud begot Eliezer, and Eliezer begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And finally, verse 16, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and David until the carrying away unto Babylon are 14 generations, and from carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus will carry. We'll look at that next week. Let's stand together with Bible in hand, and we'll pray together. Father, thank you so much again just for this glorious, glorious privilege to be together. And often we're reminded of Psalms 138, where you have taken your word and you've esteemed it even above your own name, Father. And I don't know on this side of eternity if we can fully grasp what that means. But we do know that the word of God is living and powerful and sharp, that double-edged sword, Lord. So... Again, all we can do, Father, is present ourselves to you as a living sacrifice and ask that your Holy Spirit would just pour his will, his purposes, Lord, into our hearts this morning. Use your word, Lord. Thank you again. Thank you for your bride, your church. We get just to 
to enjoy the privilege of it all. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen. Okay. You know, trying to switch gears a little bit from, uh, you know, kind of getting off course with the life and the ministry of Jesus. And I don't know, we're so close to the crucifixion. I mean, any, any day or any time, it's right to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection. But at Christmas time, you kind of want to gravitate to the birth, right? And so just trying to get, you know, uh, ready for this thing, um, you know, I came across a pretty funny story. And it's an old story. And, and, uh, but USA Today posted this thing and uh, was talking about Christmas pageants. How churches and organizations put on these pageants, and uh, and they become more elaborate every year. It's almost like they want to outdo each other. In fact, even today, if you go to a Christmas pageant, it's not unusual to see real live animals. You know, true. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. And um, and then again, trying to make them more elaborate, they actually will go out and hire outside help. You know, and there was this one particular church. They wanted this pageant to be so spectacular and off the charts. They hired these outside people to rig up rope and tack block and tackle. And and literally, um, they want flying angels to come across the congregation, if you can imagine. And so they're getting ready. And I, I don't know what angel it was, but he takes his descent... And halfway across the congregation, he gets stuck. (laughs) And the pastor didn't know it, but this wasn't even a Christian. And so they're trying to free him up by tugging on some of the pulleys and the rope while the poor guy begins to spin over the congregation. You guys are looking at me. I'm not sure. It's a true story. And and as as he's swinging, he starts to have the... Well, he's saying some words he shouldn't be saying in church. And, and he starts to have the urge to regurge. Oh, it's, it gets worse. Well, then there goes his cookies. And it's not showers of blessings, man. Tell, let me tell you something. People are running for cover. But, yeah, I know. Isn't that funny, man? <laughs> But, you know, they, they, they just, they wanted their pageant to be extravagant and they wanted their, 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 this, this thing to just be uh, so off the chart. And, and um, they'll go, you know, you see them, they'll go to great length to, to get um, even children um, pageants. So, you know, let's get the best well-behaved kids. Well, let's find that one gifted child who really can belt it out and sing. And we just, we, let's have the best cast. You know, let's have rehearsal and we'll, you know, we'll just get the best cast for this, this whole thing. Well, I, I give you that just to lighten the mood a little bit. But, you know, we read chapter one here of Matthew and God has a pageant and he has Pick the cast. But it's not an elaborate cast by any stretch of the imagination. If you look at some of these 
uh, supporting characters and behind the scenes you can almost you know it's some of it's not even sanitary and I, and I don't mean the manger so much or or the um where Jesus was birthed. I'm, I'm talking about even behind the scenes. Uh, I, I'm talking about, you know, why would God, the divine director of this pageant, pick the cast like this, you know? And um, you look in this genealogy, you look at the the folks um, that are in this, this, we'll call it a drama, and you look at these people and you go, that's interesting. Now, of course, we would say absolutely. Let's pick the Abrahams. Let's pick the Isaacs. Let's pick the Jacobs, you know. Let's throw David. David had his ups and downs, but, you know, we did get Solomon from him. And, you know, Solomon had his problem. But let's get somebody with a super name. Let's get Jumpin' Jehoshaphat, you know. Let's get him in that cast of characters. Now, I would say that's your supporting role. That's, you know, you want to cast characters like that. And, um, but listen, folks, you know, when you and I look at our family tree, we think, well, I had no option. I have no choice. You know, my brother's my brother, my sister, you know, my aunts and uncles, we don't have a choice. But the fact of the matter is God had a choice. God picked these individuals. He did pick the Abrahams. He did pick the um, um, the Isaacs and such. But he also picked the Jorams and the Ahazes and the the Jeconias Who and I, I'm, I'll, I'll keep it real with you, uh, guys. These were losers, and it's almost I feel hypocritical saying that, but they were losers. Their their behavior off the charts. Their spirituality was absurd. Some of the decisions. They made they they had shadows over them. They had bad reputation. They caused nations to go into exile, and yet God decided to put them in this pageant, Christmas pageant. It's just to me, it just blows my mind. Now, what blows my mind even more is He also picks four women. For listen, ladies, you've come a long way, baby. See, in their culture, the Hebrew culture, they would never have thought to put a female in their genealogy. It's never thought of. It's never heard of. It's against their custom. It's actually against an unwritten rule. They would never have a female in their genealogy. But I believe why God has picked it or chose to have them in this cast of character is because in some ways they portray you and me. That this pageant that happened 2,000 years ago there in Bethlehem is something that you and I can relate to even today. I think what he's showing us is that no matter where we have come from, what our backgrounds are, that God still chooses to do, well, what he wants and picks who he wants. And he doesn't need anyone's permission in doing it. Amen, guys? Let's look at Ruth for a minute in, in, our, in this genealogy. We don't have time to go through each and every name. And, and, and just that would take us months. But let's just look at the four gals that are mentioned here. And I don't have them in order. 
Um, but just think of Ruth. Okay, what's the big deal? Ruth's a beautiful story. Okay, folks, let me have your eyes for a second. She is a Moabitist. She is not even Jewish. And yet she's in this genealogy of Jesus, in the cast of characters. She is the one who really, um, it, 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 she's, it, the Moabitists were despised. They were uh, uh, despised by the Israelites. They were actually enemies of the Israelites. And it just shows me that God chooses to embrace the disenfranchised people. If you know what I mean by that. Just the disenfranchised people, the outsiders. And he just says, that's who I want in, in this pageant. I want to throw this person in the cast of actors. And this is what I want. And you know how many times I've heard over the years? Ah, the Lord don't want me, man. I'm an outsider. I'm a cast off. Now, how many of you guys have ever felt like that in your BC days? Not important here. God would never want me. Well, you might be totally wrong. Well, I know you're wrong. That God does want. You know, the word tells us emphatically that it's his will that none, none be cast aside. But all would come to repentance. No one is a cast aside. Uh, he wants to make them a part. He wants to include them in the family. So you might feel like a Moabite, a Moabitist. He also mentions Bathsheba in this genealogy. Now, Bathsheba, her name isn't actually written there. We don't actually read that. We do know her story. We know that when David should have been off to war, he decided to stay home. He's lounging on the top of the house. He's seeing things he shouldn't see. And before you know it, that emotion, that lust overwhelms him. He has an affair with Bathsheba who's married and it just starts to get worse. And David says, you know, I'll fix this on my own. I'll send her, her husband off into war. He'll be killed in battle. That doesn't work. He tries and tries. And before you know it, here, here he is. He's taken and Uriah's wife is mentioned there in verse 6. Now what's this telling us about her though? And why would God choose her to be a part of this, of this cast of people? Well, even 2,000 years later, or pardon me, 1,000 years later from this, this incident to the birth of Christ, 1,000 years or so, give or take, there has been a shadow over this woman's life. She walks around with a stigma. Even 1,000 years later, hey, David, uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and Bathsheba, and I don't mean Bathsheba, I mean Bathsheba. It's always had this stigma over her. Oh, even a thousand years later. And yet God, in his mercy and his grace, I'm going to put her in my cast. I'm going to make her a part of the family tree. I'm going to put her in the genealogy of the divine one, the one who would be birthed in Bethlehem. What a beautiful story. The next one that we also see in verse 5 is this gal of Rahab. Now, we all know Rahab's story if you've been through the Bible. Rahab, again, is a prostitute. She lives pretty close to the top of, the, of Jericho's walls. You see, Israel was coming into the promised land, and the first thing they had to conquer was, well, it wasn't the first thing, but to get into the promised land to conquer it, they had to face the fortified walls of Jericho. 
And again, I'm not going to go through this whole story of how they marched around six times. And on the seventh time, they broke their lanterns. They shouted. The walls came down. But something happened before that. See, Joshua wasn't real sure about this whole thing. And so he sends in two spies. And as they're coming in to spy out the gate and to spy out how fortified it was, they got caught. Well, at least they heard, hey, two spies are in the camp somewhere. Well, Rahab finds them. And Rahab says, look, I heard of what your God has done for you. I have heard how your God has conquered these giants of the land, has just given you such great victory. And I know and I believe your God's going to do the same thing here in Jericho. Let me hide you. And so Rahab hides them. She doesn't even, she doesn't just hide them. The gal even lies for them. Hey, have you seen these two spies? Nope. Well, maybe I did. Yeah, in fact, I did. I just saw two of them hightailing it out, and they're going in that direction. And she lied and diverted the whole posse that was after them. And she brings them back out, and she says, listen, just listen. Just remember me when you come in and God gives you this city. And Spy says, well, just dangle this scarlet thread down from this dwelling place you live in. Now, that's a very interesting story about Rahab, isn't it? And we think, man, that's a lot of grace and that's a lot of mercy. But I liked maybe to draw your attention to something that I just, I, I read it through this week and I thought, that's something people need to hear even during the Christmas season. Because when we follow this story that starts in chapter 2 and it'll go all the way into chapter 6. But in chapter 6 it says this. Joshua said to two men that had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house. Bring out thence the woman and all that she has as you had swore unto her. And the young men that were the spies went in and brought out Rahab. Listen. Brought out Rahab, the father, the mother, the brethren. And all that she had and brought out all her kindred, all her family, her relatives along with him. And that's exactly what happened. Just think of the magnitude of this, folks. Just think that because this woman, her testimonies of this glorious victories that Israel was was um, uh, having and the power of their God, she's in all of her faith starts to well up in her heart. Well, if that God can do it for them, that God can do it for me. Wait, time out. Hold the brakes a little bit. If he can do it for me, he can do it for my family. And that right away sends me, it hurls me right into the New Testament. When Peter is telling, you know, that, that Roman Saturn, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So will your house. I don't think, guys, that we understand such power in faith. Randy was sharing a little bit about that last night, that, that faith. Not, not just for the healing uh, of, of Graham, but even for, to carry her through those, those weeks and those times where she felt alone, those times where she was alone. The power of faith. You know, my, I remember, and not to bog you down with a bunch of stories, but I remember um, I got saved. Right? My, my brother was saved first, 
And, um, and we kind of lived in a kind of little dysfunctional home there. But uh, I never thought at all my dad was a good person. A bad, he was an evil person, actually. But when my brother said, and dad's going to get saved, I said, how can you say such an absurd thing like that? Dad would get saved. He goes, oh, Harry, the Bible says if you get saved, your house will be saved. And I remember them praying for them and praying. And not only did dad get saved, my, my brother got saved, my sister got saved, my mom got saved. And every Sunday we were heading off to church. There's something about believing in the word of God. Listen, we're going through a, a season where we're singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Joy to the World, you know. But not for that one. I've scratched them off my list. I can't have them in my pageant. I can't have them in my cast of characters. And yet we see a a harlot, a Rahab, who believed in the power of the living God. And she said, well, if he can save me, he can save my family. How many of you guys are facing your family this season and you know they're not believers or Christians today? Just put your hand up. Let's start believing right now that the same God who could save a Bathsheba, who could save a Rahab, who could take the cloud away from a Bathsheba or save the likes of a Moabitist, can save our family this Christmas season. Amen, church? I love it. Let's keep going down. I have just a few more minutes here. Um, There's... um, what we see in, in, in Rahab's life, too, by the way, not only does her family get saved, she, is, she marries a prince. Most people believe she marries a prince, and that's mentioned in um, Numbers, and it's also mentioned uh, in our chapter here. But also, she's mentioned in James chapter 2, I believe it is, um, where, where when James is talking about what real faith is, literally brings her uh, up her name up as an example of faith and, and by the way hebrews chapter 11 we have her mentioned in the hall of faith amen guys and here's a woman who just believed in the power that god had to tear down walls and we can still believe in that same power there's another um, a person that i want to bring to our attention there and that's tamar tamar now we think of Judah, he would be one, of course, we would pick. But that Judah, you know, Judah was a, he was a character, that Judah. Judah means, too, by the way, praise, you know. Uh, Judah, through, through the, line, the, the, the line of Judah would come the Messiah. We think of Judah, the, but Judah was a stinker, man. You know, he, in fact, uh, it tells us in Genesis that Judah, he was trying to find a wife, and instead of obeying God's principles, and his, he went into the Canaanite area, and he picked for himself uh, uh, a Canaanite wife. Well, let me try to find the passage for you. There, there it is. It's in Genesis chapter uh, 38. I'll read it to you. And it came to pass that at the time that Judah departed from his brothers, he visited a certain Udamite um, whose name was Hira, and Judah saw there a, a, a daughter of the certain Canaanites whose name was Shua. Shua, you know, the Old Testament name. And she, um, and, and he married her and went into her, and she conceived, she bore a son, and her, his name was Ur. 
And she conceived again and bore a son, and his name was Onan. And then she conceives again, and now she, she, um, she calls his name Shelah. So you have, first of all, you have Judah marrying a Canaanite, and then they have children. First child is Ur, second child is Onan, the third child is Shelah. Now, the story is very interesting, and I'll have to paraphrase it for you. So they have Ur. Ur begins to grow up. He's becoming a handsome young man, and so Judah thought, well, we've got to get my boy a, a wife. And that's the way they did it back then. It was called a live right Custom. It's where dad would find a bride for, um, for the son. I bet you that made some interesting table talk, didn't it? Around the dinner table with the other boys. <laughs> you know, you pick, be careful, dad, who you pick. And um, so Ur uh, uh, gets a wife. And the wife's name was Tamar. And um, problem is that um, Ur did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and he was judged by God and he died. Now because of this, this Levite law, um, the next son in line had to marry Tamar in order for the name and the heritage to keep going. Well, the problem with it, second son, Onan, he dies. Still no kids. And so Tamar now look, is looking at Sheila. Sheila's running now. I mean, no. You would wonder, you know, two down, three, no, you know. But no, actually, that's exactly what Judah had thought. Wait a minute, I, there's no way. This girl's bad luck. I'm not going to send, you know. And so he, he uses the excuse he's too young, and he sends Tamar away. But he promises Tamar, hey, as soon as he's old enough, I'll send her to you. Or send him to you. Or maybe it's the other way around. But anyway. And, uh, but he had no intentions in doing it. He was deliberately keeping his younger son from her. And he was breaking the law. It was a, a law. Tamar, eventually she realized that she is being duped. And, and so... Um, oh, and by the way, in the middle of this, between Onan and Sheila, um, the wife dies. Judah's wife. And so he's lonely and he goes on a hike and he comes across a prostitute who's very heavily veiled and he goes in on, into her. See, Judah wasn't, you know, all that. And he goes in on, into her and, and he comes out and he says, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to pay you with. It's a sad story, isn't it? She says, that's okay. Why don't you give me your ring and your bracelet and your staff and I'll hold it. And when you get some money, you come back and pay me. Well, he goes back home and he gets his stuff together and he gets money. He says to his servant, would you do me a favor? There's a prostitute down the road. She's heavily veiled. Get my bracelet, get my ring, get my staff. Give her this money. Servant comes back. There's no such person. He goes, what are you talking about? He goes, there's no such person. People around there says there's never been a prostitute in years here. So that's weird. So he takes his ring, his bracelet, and his staff back, his money, I'm sorry, his money back. Later on, months go on, and he gets word. Hey, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, she's pregnant, man. She's pregnant. She's pregnant. Bring her to me. They drag her there. You know what Judah says? Burn her. Burn her. 
I know this is kind of a sad story to end this message with, but uh, she says, hey, that's fine. But do me a favor. Whoever owns this ring and whoever owns this bracelet and whoever owns this staff, would you give it back to him? And Judah looks at it. And Judah literally breaks, sobs, calls her a righteous woman, more righteous than he would ever be. And he restores her. He repents. And I'm thinking, wow, Lord, why? Why would you have this character? Judah, I get, because we have a lot of good things to say about Judah. But, but a Tamar. And you know what the Lord really reveals to me, even during the Christmas holidays? There are Melabites, even in the church today, who feel in their hearts disenfranchised, outcast. It takes everything in their power just to get to a church service. Or maybe there's actually people in your life that you have disenfranchised. You've cut them out. They've hurt you. Maybe there's a Bathsheba. There's people in your life that wherever they go, there's this cloud, there's this stigma always over top of them. Maybe there's a Tamar. And what God is telling you and me in this time, this season, is maybe one of the greatest gifts we can give back to God is the gift of grace. Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Does it? That with the same grace and love that he's shown to us, we can show. In fact, I was out there during the, uh, in the morning at the Christmas tree. One of them had blown over. I was trying to. And somebody came through. And I invited him to a, 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 um, a Christmas, the Christmas Eve service. She, he, it was a, she, she goes, oh, if I walked in there, the roof would fall down. I, we got a strong church, man. I don't think so. Well, and plus a lot of contractors. But why does she feel that way? Maybe somebody told her that. Maybe there's people in our lives during this Christmas season. They just need that gift of grace and love. Forgiveness. So what they said something. Oh, I scratched them. They're getting no Christmas card from me this year. (laughs) Put them back on the list. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to love conditionally. It tells us to love unconditionally. Would you stand with me, please? You know, I, I... I think of some of the Christmas carols we sing during this holiday season. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I think he means that. I think he does. Peace in in our hearts. Goodwill to... Except for him. How many people can't come Christmas Eve and sing joy to the world because there's no joy in their hearts. They've been raked over the coals. There's been families who have disowned them. They are Bathshebas. They are Tamars. They are Ruths. Let's invite them in. Find someone in your life, family, friend, and 
bring them out Christmas Eve. We'll make room. It'll be jam-packed, but we'll make room. And let's sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Right, guys?